we're doing podcast number 17. I want to welcome everybody back. Today we're going to discuss how to deal with your loved one when they suffer from the the disease of addiction. There are different variances. Let's say your loved one is in recovery. They've just gotten out of treatment and you've decided to let them stay in the house instead of going into sober living. That's a decision that you and your loved one have to come to and you have to agree to because it's not easy. The first thing to realize is when somebody comes out of recovery, they're all often very uh, defensive. So what does that mean? Um, they feel that they've been through 30, 60, 90 days of treatment. They've been through a week of detox. It's often not what you think it is when they're in treatment. Treatment is not an easy thing. They're in there. They're uh, having therapy sometimes for eight hours a day. They stop for meals, of course. They take breaks. It's not an easy task. They're talking with therapists. They're in groups. They're talking with their friends and often in conflicts. And it's all day and sometimes, they're not sometimes, they often go to meetings at night too. They have to go to AA, NA, whatever their particular desire is for what their fellowship is going to be. So uh, they come home and then they go into the house and you're nervous and that's a natural reaction. So don't be upset that you're nervous, you're entitled to. You've gone through a different kind of help, but you've gone through the same help, not the same help. I mean, you know, that's an oxymoron, what I just said. But you've gone through hell as much as they've gone through hell. So keep in mind that you're entitled to be nervous and you're entitled to question them. And that's why I always recommend to them and them being those that suffer from the disease and are in treatment, that they should consider going to sober living facility, halfway houses, and that should be a part of their recovery treatment. They will more often listen to their friends in the recovery house easier than they'll listen to you. They'll listen to their house manager faster than they'll take advice from you. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just say that they go to a meeting, which they should do when they get out of treatment. They should continue to go to their meetings and work their fellowship and work their program, whatever their program is. And I once had somebody say, well, I'm not in a step program, I'm in a faith-based program. But that's a program. He just said that to me, I'm in a faith-based program faith-based program, and there it is. It's a program, and you have to work that program. They don't let you just sit there and pray. You're working a program, and people are discussing things with you, and that's your program that you've chosen. And if that's what you like, and that's how you feel you're going to be able to maintain your sobriety, then things are good. That's your fellowship that you've chosen and you have to work your program. And when you're at a meeting, and whenever whatever your fellowship is, you go to a meeting, and you should do that daily, especially at the beginning. They say 90 meetings in 90 days, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that it helps you set up a routine. So 
your loved one is at home. You're in recovery. And it's kind of like driving a car. What do I mean by that? You're driving a car and you know when you're going to step on that brake and you know you're going to step on that brake. And you're sitting next to your wife, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, whoever you're sitting next to. They have a driver's license too and they know how they drive. So they know when they would step on that brake and if you don't happen to think it's time to step on the brake yet you take a look at them and their feet are bouncing on the floor because they're ready to step on the brake and they're stepping on the brake for you and yes they are nervous well you go to your meeting and you come home let's say the meeting is from seven to eight and you come home at 8.30 every day. Maybe the meeting's a half hour from your house. Maybe you stop off for a sandwich, a cup of coffee, whatever. Maybe you fellowship with somebody and you, get, you come home at 8.30 every night from the meeting that ends at 8. Your mom gives you a hug, how was your day? Your dad gives you a hug, how was your day? And remember, you're living in their house. You should abide by their rules. That's common courtesy. When you're a guest in somebody's house, and I know you say, look, I've been living here for 20 some odd years. I went into treatment, suddenly I'm a treatment, and suddenly I'm a guest in their house. Well, yes, you are, because you're an adult, and there comes a time that you should be out on your own. After going into treatment for 90 days, that's a good time to think about going out on your own, but you, you didn't. You came home and you want to get on your feet, and you want to get things going. So that's a, that's a good selection too, if that's the reason you went home and you said, mom, dad, if it's your parents you're living with, uh, I, I just want to get on my feet and I want to get some bucks together and then I could get an apartment or uh, whatever. I can go out on my own and I, you know, I want to get a job. I want to get things situated so I don't have the extra tension, financial tension in my head aside from the trip of staying sober, which is not an easy task, and I'll be the first one to grant you that. Yes, there's programs, and yes, there's people who will give you support, but it's not an easy task to stay sober initially. That's why you go to meetings, 90 meetings in 90 days. You got to remember that your parents are anxiety when you go to these meetings and they're hoping that you're going to the meetings. Unless you invite them to come with you, they're not coming. If it happens to be an open meeting, uh, that's, that's something that's really productive because your parents don't really know that much about what goes on at these meetings and they don't know other than what they are able to read in a book and a book doesn't always tell you unless it's written by somebody who's specifically trying to introduce them to this disease. A lot of books are academic, and academic is one facet of this disease and doesn't always explain what they would like to know about the disease and what they should know about the disease. That comes from actually being with people who suffer from the disease. So if you can bring your loved ones to a meeting, 
that would be extra enlightening for them and, and would help set them at ease and ease their anxiety. We're at the meeting now and you hook up with the group that you fellowship with and they say, hey, you know what, we're not going for coffee tonight. Did you have supper yet? And you say, no, I was going to have it when I got home. I was late with lunch, so I'm going to eat when I get home. And they say, well, why don't you join us and go out to eat? You get home instead of at 8.30, you get home at 9.30. And you walk in the door and you're about to tell your parents or your sister or your brother what a great night you had. You went to the meeting, you learned some stuff, you spoke with people, you fellowshiped. And then they invited you to go to dinner and they're looking at you and checking your eyes out and saying, you know, where were you? And uh, all of a sudden you're catching stuff because you did the right thing. But did you do the right thing? Think about it now. I don't know too many people that suffer from the disease that don't have a cell phone. And if you had a cell phone, got on the phone and said to them, I'm going with my group that I fellowship with. They invited me to join them for dinner, so I'm going to be home a little late. Don't be upset. I'll be home about an hour late, so don't worry. Take care. I'll see you later when I come into the room or whatever. I'll let you know when I'm home. That would be great, and that's a double that would be because the year deserves double. That would be consideration, and that would be easing somebody's worry to a certain extent because now they're saying, aha, uh -huh, is he going out to eat or what? But that's, that's going to be natural and don't take that personal because for so many years you've told them stories and I'm putting that politely, but you've lied to them. And I was at a meeting once where my house manager, when I had my half my house, said the way to tell when somebody that's an active addiction is lying is their lips are moving. The therapist got upset and said, why you who suffered from this active addiction for so long, because he got, when he was 60 years old, um, why would you demean somebody who suffers from this disease? And he looked at her and said, because it's the truth. Uh, that's part of their survival mechanism. And they have to lie. They're not going to go home and tell their parents, I overdosed three times today and I'm home and you're lucky to see me because I almost died three times. Thank God somebody called the paramedics and they got there before my heart stopped. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, yeah, I had a great day. I'm not using any more. Bop, bop, go in their room. Maybe they're going to shoot up, and maybe they're going to snort, whatever they do, and then they're going to try to fall asleep and not have to worry about getting high again until they get up dope sick. So, yes, lying is a part of active addiction. They have been through it and back. They don't always trust you, and you build that trust up over time. It's not going to happen one day, you know. You're not going to get out of treatment and say, I'm clean and you can trust me and everything's great and uh, I'm cured because you're never cured and they never know when you're going to relapse. If you're going to relapse, they worry. And they don't worry because they hate you. They worry because they love you. So keep that in mind. And keep an open, keeping, uh, my Brooklyn kicked in there, keeping 
but keeping open lines of communication is the best way to do that. When somebody is in active addiction and living at home, that's a, a whole different story. You have to set boundaries and you have to somehow try to live as normal a life as you can. I'm not talking about those that suffer from the disease. I'm talking about if you decide to keep your person, your loved one, who suffers from this disease in active addiction at home. And that is like probably one of the greatest signs that you love them that you've ever seen because that's living in total turmoil, that's living in total chaos. I loved my daughter so much, but I couldn't. I couldn't live like that. And I, I often tell people, and I feel bad that I do, that, you know, you don't have to live like that. You have the right to live a quasi-normal life. And I say quasi-normal because you're always in a state of wondering if your loved one has died, has gotten arrested, is in the hospital. You, you don't know what's going on, and this is such a, a, a horrible way to live. But if they're living at home, it's even harder. You don't know whether you can walk into their room. You don't want to see them shooting up or getting high. You don't want to find them dead in their room. There's so many things that add to your chaos and fear and you're living under conditions that people are not supposed to live under. If you have them at home, you have to set boundaries. What kind of boundaries? Boundaries that you can't tell them you can't get high if you're living at home because they're going to get high. Somebody in active addiction is not going to say, okay, I'm not getting high. I'm, I'm going to be at home for 10 hours and I'm not getting high because if they're in active addiction, they're going to get high when they have to get high. And let me tell you that. They're going to tell you, no, I'm not getting high. I'm, no, I would never do that to you. I'll never get high in the house. But they're getting high because otherwise they're getting sick. And you're going to see them throwing up, rolling on the floor with cramps, loose bowel movements. They're going to be sick as a dog. So you know they're getting high if they're acting somewhat normal. When I say normal, I mean they're not sick as a dog. They're going to be nodding out. They might be overdosing. There's going to be all kinds of things. But you set the boundaries. You say, if you're getting high, you got to leave. I can't live like that. I love you, but I can't. I can't. It's too much for me. I'm going to get sick. And one of us have to be okay to see what happens, to keep an eye on things. I, I can't I can't give up my life so that you can give up your life comfortably. If you're going to be putting these conditions on me, I can't live like this. Does that mean that you have to do this? No, because you know what? They can overdose on the street, and they can overdose at home, and they could decide to get straight on the street, and they could decide to get straight at home. And there is no right or wrong with this disease, you got to do what you feel is right in your heart. Keep in mind, and please, I'm talking from my heart now, keep in mind that you have to do what you feel is right for you. You cannot be put into a position 
to take responsibility for the actions of your loved one. And I say loved one because you might say, I don't love them, they're destroying my life, I hate them, but you don't. Because when you get that call, if you ever get that call, that they overdosed and you better get to the hospital because we don't know if they're going to make it, you're going to run. And your family's going to tell you, forget about them, that's the life they're going to live. They'll contact you if something bad goes wrong. The hospital, the police will get in touch with you. In the meantime, you live your life. Well, to a certain extent, they're right. Get away, get away stop thinking. You can't constantly live like that because you will die. You got to take the time to care about yourself because they need you and they need your support when they decide to get straight. They're going to need somebody who really loves them, and nobody loves them more than a family member. Yes, you're going to do things that you're going to say, I shouldn't have done. If something goes south, you can count on something going south because that's part of the disease. Now, that does not mean that something will go south. When I say south, I'm talking about an overdose that could be fatal. But that's part of the disease, especially now with the fentanyl that's coming in. And it's a cheap synthetic opiate, and it, they use it to cut the drugs. There are approximately 100 or more percent more powerful than heroin. So if they're shooting heroin and they have it mixed with or cut with the fentanyl, there's going to be a problem, and the problem could be fatal. You just might say, why didn't I keep them at home? Maybe I would have found them. The chances of you finding them are very slim. If you happened, look, twice I found my daughter overdosed, and we were able to bring her back. But the third time, she was at home, and she was under house arrest. She was under house arrest, and she got her drugs. If they used their brain the way they do to get drugs when they're in relapse mode to lead a successful life they would be very successful most people that suffer from this disease are very smart and when i say that i mean they uh, they do an, uh, an exceptional job of surviving and that requires a high degree of intelligence, whether they use it for positive things or negative things, that's up to them. But usually when they're in active addiction, they're using it for negative things. So you have to survive to be there to help them when they're ready. You never know when they're going to be ready. So if you're planning on going on a cruise and suddenly they come home and say, look, uh, I can't live on the street anymore. It's cold. I'm hungry. I'm this. I'm that. And you decide to take them in, set your boundaries. If you're going to get high in the house, if you want to get high, leave. When you come down, come back home. If you're going to overdose, do it out on the street. I don't want to be the one that finds you dead in the house. I'd rather be notified by somebody else. Uh, I cannot live wondering what you're doing in your room, wondering if you're going to be alive when I walk in your room, when I tell you to come on, I made supper. I don't want to have to worry that I'm going to walk in your room and find you half on your bed, half on the floor, blue. So 
you set the boundaries, you got to keep the boundaries, which is also a very hard thing to do. I've discussed that in previous podcasts. Keeping a boundary with your loved one, especially if they're new and you haven't had to force boundaries upon them, it's a very hard thing to do until you've gotten to the point where you've had it about a foot and a half over the top of your head. When I say that, I mean you can't take it anymore. You say it's either go in for treatment or get out of the house. That's a boundary that you can keep. Uh, It's much easier to set boundaries and keep boundaries when you're suffering from compassion fatigue, and that's something that you develop over time when you just can't control your emotions anymore because you've been pushed over time. You've been pushed by your loved ones to the point where you just say, that's it, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. Out. So what do we do now? You got to keep in mind that the most important thing is for you to stay healthy. And when I say that, I mean you owe it to yourself. You owe it to the people in your family who aren't using. And most of all, You owe it to your loved one who suffers from this disease to stay healthy. Because my house manager was a very wise guy. When I not a wise guy, he was very wise when it came to this disease. He knew everything about it except how it affects family. But he said to me when my daughter came home, he said, "Your daughter is truly." an addict and she at this point is living the way she's living and she's not ready to stop. There will come a time when she just can't live like that anymore and at that time she will go into a treatment and the treatment will work because she's been through so much that she can't handle it. She will say I'm done and he said I hope that you and your wife are still alive to see it happen. He said, if she doesn't do it before, he said, I hope she lives long enough to reach that point. He said, I did. He was 60 years old when he finally entered into long-term sobriety. He happened to pass from not an overdose, he passed from cancer. But when he would run our house meetings, and this was a tough guy. I mean, he was a tough guy. You didn't want to look at him wrong. He would cry, and he would say to the guys, I wish that my parents were alive now so that they could see me now and how I'm trying to help you guys and teach you about what goes on. So I highly recommend, if you're going to let your loved one live at home in active addiction, think about it before you do it. I'm not telling you not to do it, but set those boundaries and try to keep yourself in a rational state and try to learn how to live without causing you undue hardship and learn how to live without causing you ill health because of the circumstances. And we're running out of time now. So I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank you all for attending. And I want to give you some information if you have any questions and you want to dis- you know want me to discuss any particular subject you can email me it's email my email address is addiction in the family now what 
at gmail.com. If you're looking for a treatment center and don't know a good one, you can call SAMHSA. Their telephone, SAMHSA, is the Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And you can call them at 1-800-662-4357 and give them the name of the place you're thinking about sending your loved one to. And ask them if they have any recommendations. You can go online and... Uh, you can get help if your loved one seems suicidal. Google, you know, suicide prevention crisis and, dis uh, and disaster aid, and you'll get some help numbers there. They'll discuss things with you and tell you how to do it. And there's help for you. You can go to Naranon, Alanon, and there's Alateen if your loved one has uh, children or if your loved one uh, has siblings that are in their teens, there's help for them too, and you should consider getting them help and getting yourself help. See what you think of these programs. They're not for everybody, but they're there to help you, and they're free. So yes, I want to mention my book too. That'll give you some support and some insight into the disease. The name of my book, by pure coincidence, is Addiction in the Family, Now What? It's available at Amazon. If you go on to my website or on uh, look me up on Facebook, my name is Larry Fish. The book's under my, full, my proper name, Lawrence Fish. If you go on there, they give you QR codes for, that'll bring you right to the book site. The book is $20, and it, it gives you good insight into the book, and it gives you a lot of information that will help you deal with this disease. Uh, I've been going to family night meetings and uh, approximately four meetings a week for about 16 years before I wrote the book, and it took me about two years, three years to write the book because I kept learning new things. So... I want to again thank you all for coming. Have a safe week. This is podcast number 17. Tomorrow I'll start working on podcast number 18. <laughs>